One thing that's really interesting, you know, we, we talked about our playbook for decarbonization, and for us, energy efficiency is still number one. We've still got to go after those energy efficiency projects and try to find justification for them. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. Today, we're sharing a panel from our recent Innovation Summit that was moderated by our Head of Educational Programming, Peter Kelly Dittweiler. The panel featured Dave Reed, Senior Manager of Energy and Productivity at Celanese, and Susan Corey, Director of Engineering and Energy at the University of Maryland in College Park, my alma mater, by the way. The topic they discussed was decarbonizing thermal loads. With heating and cooling accounting for more than a quarter of total energy use and almost half of energy-related carbon emissions in the United States, cost-effective solutions to decarbonize these thermal loads are few and far between. Peter explores the topic with Susan and David, and I know you'll enjoy it. Let's listen in on their conversation. Thermal loads are a real challenge. Many of you are probably familiar with the term hard to abate, which is how I felt about my kids when they were little. But hard to abate emissions are the really tough ones to go after. And thermal's really a challenge. It's a quarter of our energy use and about half of our emissions. And if you look around right now at the technologies out there, I'm director of educational programs for SED. And I also do a lot of research. I read about two to four hours every day. 32 newsletters. If you want the list, I'll give it to you. It's a spreadsheet and I have everything that I follow. And one of the things I follow is the tech in that thermal application space. And clearly hydrogen is in the offing. But there are also these other interesting technologies that are starting to emerge. For example, this concentrating solar. So there's this company in California right now that just signed this lease with the U.S. government for land. where they're going to put these concentrating mirrors, kind of like that big facility outside of Las Vegas. But this one, the idea is to drive all this focused solar energy at these mirrors with molten salts and generate either hydrogen or heat for thermal applications. And there's already one contractor working on with an industrial customer. Siemens has this project in Europe where they are taking wind energy and putting it through resistors to warm up volcanic rock in these big structures. And first, they were going to use that to generate steam and generate power. But the round-trip efficiencies were 30%, so they lose 70% of the energy. So now they're saying, well, we're going to pivot and we're going to use that for thermal applications, maybe district heating, maybe industrial, et cetera. Their tagline is, welcome to the new stone age, which I'm not sure that's what I would have done in marketing, but nonetheless, there are some of these technologies in the offing out there, and we're seeing that they may work, they may not. The real challenge with all these is the same thing that happened with wind and solar and batteries is, can you get them to scale? First of all, are they viable? And then can we create the economies of scale while we're improving the technology? 
So with batteries, for example, and, and modules, there's this thing called the experience curve or Wright's law, which a fellow named Theodore Wright looked at the airplane industry in the early 1900s and postulated after looking at it for a while that every cumulative doubling of global aircraft manufacturing, labor costs fell by about 10 to 15%. With batteries and with modules, the batteries get better, different technologies, lithium iron phosphate, nickel manganese, cobalt, et cetera, et cetera. Solar panels, different technologies out there as well, but primarily crystal silicon. With those, the doubling of manufacturing cuts the cost by roughly 20 to 25%. But those are scalable, massive gigafactories with panels or batteries. In this thermal application space, the challenge is going to be, especially when the applications aren't one size fits all, because each of you with your different end uses may need different technologies. So that's going to be one of the big global challenges as we drive to that two degrees by 2050 Paris goal, or even now 1.5 degrees, given the severity of the challenge out there. So in today's conversation, we've got Susan Corey from the University of Maryland and Dave Reed from Selenese, whom I'd like to welcome up to the stage. And we're gonna be talking about the challenges and the opportunities here in this country with those two institutions and and Selenese is, is global. So how do they see this thing? What are some of the steps going forward? And what are the challenges that are staring all of us in the face right now with these thermal applications? So if I can welcome the two of you up to the stage, Susan and Dave. So what I'd like to do just to set the stage here is have each one of you introduce yourselves for a minute or two, what it is you do at your respective institutions, and then big picture that on-ramp, the thesis statement, what are you looking at within your end-use applications and, and how is that playing out for you? And then we'll get into a round-robin type of a conversation. So, Susan, if I can start with you and, and then, David, I'll give this to you. Sure, great. I'm Susan Corey. I'm the Director of Engineering and Energy at the University of Maryland. My responsibilities include commodity purchasing, renewable strategies, building design standards, building commissioning, and last but not least, the operations and maintenance of a 27-megawatt combined heat and power plant. So that last item is kind of what causes me to lose some sleep. In terms of carbon reduction related to our power consumption, you know, a CHP is already a combined cycle, very efficient plant. So when we look at our carbon emissions overall as a campus, You know, we reached our 2020 goal, which was a 50% reduction of our carbon emissions over a 2005 baseline. And really the the remaining emissions, roughly 80% of the emissions is coming from our power plant. So, you know, that's kind of the elephant in the room when we talk about carbon emissions or carbon reduction. And everybody turns to me and says, you know, Susan, what are we going to do about that power plant? (laughs) And so we've built a matrix of sorts looking at various technologies and and various strategies, but the combined heat and power plant is our only source of heat for the campus. It produces all the steam that we use for heating and process loads. And again, it's inherently efficient, capturing the, the waste heat associated with electricity production and using that to create steam for the entire campus. So when I talk to our students, when I talk to our leadership, that plant has been in existence. It started out as a, a boiler plant, and then it got converted to a CHP. So it's been with the campus for over 50 years. 
And I say, you know, whatever we decide to do, it's not going to happen overnight. Again, as Peter was saying, none of the technologies right now that are available are really mature yet, not quite scalable. And frankly, I'm not at a point where I'm comfortable recommending a single technology as replacement to reduce or eliminate our carbon reductions associated with that power plant. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to David. So one one question first. So you got the first 50%. Isn't that time to drop the mic and move on to the next one? I wish. (laughs) I wish. As I said, part of my responsibilities are also renewable strategies. So on the electricity side, that's been fairly easy compared to the natural gas side. Our plant is dual fuel, so it's gas and diesel fuel. So, you know, we have a very favorable tariff associated with that interruptible load. That's another challenge we have to confront in terms of the economics of switching to something else. Thank you. And David, when we were talking before, I think you mentioned you have 35 facilities at Selenese. Can, can you tell me what your responsibility is there? Yeah, sure. So yeah, my role, I, I'm the global energy and productivity leader for Selenese. My role, my job really is to help our 35 manufacturing sites to implement energy management systems and energy projects to reduce energy cost reduce energy usage and carbon as well. So that's that's my focus. So Selenese is a global company. We make chemicals and polymers. We make products that you, you use every day, normal things like paint and adhesives and some exotic things like if you have an artificial knee or you know somebody, we probably make the polymer that goes into that. So really wide, diverse portfolio of products, wide, diverse portfolio of plants. We have 35 plants in 19 countries around the world, multiple different processes, multiple different products that we make, footprints, large sites, small sites. So a pretty diverse portfolio of plants. And on the thermal side, so when you think about thermals, about 80 to 90% of our energy load is thermal. You know, a lot of folks, electricity is the big part, but for us, it's, it's all about thermal. And if we want to reduce our carbon footprint, it has to be in that area. And, and that's the challenge for us. And we've already talked about things like, you know, is the, is the technology ready? Is it at scale? Is the infrastructure there to even get it to our plants? Or when we get it to our plants, do we have the infrastructure to do it? But we also think about risk. You know, do we have the resiliency in some of these new technologies, the re- reliability for these new technologies to work? And also for us, process safety, when we make chemicals, So we need to make sure that our plants are operated safely. So when we're bringing in new technology, that's a really important consideration for us that these technologies are are strong and they're reliable and that they're safe to to operate. So there's coal in the mix and there's oil and there's natural gas and a whole host of different hydrocarbons in the thermal applications? So for us internally, we're mostly natural gas. So when when you think about our thermal load, we, we are about... 13 million megawatt hours per year of thermal load. So pretty big load. And most of that is natural gas, but we also purchase steam from other companies externally when we're on a, when we're on a site. And, and some of that comes from gas, some of that comes from coal in different regions. So for us internally, it's, it's mostly about natural gas, but we also have some footprint from purchased steam that's coal and, and other, other sources. Thank you. So Susan, I can't imagine that you're the only facilities manager with a university or a college and a central heating plant that's dealing with this exact same challenge. How do you go out into the world and find 
the technologies or the use cases that might point direction towards success? Because we can't each learn this on our own. How does that process of investigation and discernment take place within your, within your group and within your head? The University of Maryland is a flagship university within the state of Maryland. But on a monthly basis, we convene a number of the universities within the state of Maryland, a university system. We call ourselves the Energy Committee. We get together monthly, and you know, all of us have relationships and partnerships with various energy services companies, and we kind of get together and just share information. A number of our other institutions um, either have their own district energy plants or they're purchasing steam from, from other entities, such as David does. So we really get together on a regular basis and just share knowledge, share information. Some of us, you know, have different interests. And so, you know, we've had discussions about uh, renewable natural gas and biogas and the responsibly sourced gas. And hydrogen is always an important topic, you know, where it's going and and when we think it's going to get here. We rely on each other as well as our industry partners to bring the technologies to our attention, share what they know, any potential pilot projects that, that are out there. And just trying to understand what the successes are and really, again, what are the economics behind that technology? Is it scalable? Is it something that we can even try on a pilot basis? And so just kind of keeping our finger on the pulse of of industry and what's happening out there. The university is also a major research institution. So we have a number of faculty that are doing research in this space in terms of energy-related technologies. And at one point, we did have a professor that had was growing a certain type of algae for carbon capture. And we were really considering demonstrating a small pilot project within our plant. But again, the economics was really difficult to justify, even on a small scale, or particularly on a, on a small scale. So it just never gained legs. And I, I think a lot of the technologies out there, unless you have leadership or really the dollars to devote to a newer, unproven technology as of yet, it's very much a challenge. Thank you. You mentioned the economics. One thing you hear quite often is, oh, I'm saddled with these goals of 50% or 100%, but I don't have any additional budget to make that happen. They want me to do this within today's straitjacket of costs. What, is, what does that look like in terms of your conversation with leadership around what you need, the resources you need to get to move the ball forward, David? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, we face that challenge every day. You know, we don't have, you know, some companies have a separate capital fund for sustainability or they have carbon, internal costs of carbon, things like that to help justify projects. And today in Salonese, we don't have that yet. So we've been talking about things like that to help us with, with capital. But we compete, or, you know, our energy and sustainability competes for capital with every other project within the company. And in certain times, like right now, we just had a major acquisition. We are going to be using our capital for other things. So it's always a challenge to get the funds. And that's why we're looking at some of the different, a different maybe a different playbook for getting some of these project projects justified within the company. You know, we're looking at, can we do energy as a service? Is, is there other financing options out there that we, that we can look at? And, and we're really trying to open our, our minds to different opportunities that are out there to, to finance some of these projects and make them go. Within our company, we have a very tight payback criteria for projects. You know, again, we're competing against every other capital project, including revenue generation projects where we can actually make more volume and sell it. 
And that's what we do as a company, a chemical company. So we've got to have good projects. And one thing that's really interesting, you know, we've talked about our playbook for decarbonization. And for us, energy efficiency is still number one. We've still got to go after those energy efficiency projects and try to find justification for them. We've just done a a recent, we call it an energy challenge. We've challenged our sites to come up with 30% energy reduction at the sites over a five-year period, kind of to stretch the target. That's a significant reduction. And we've actually found a lot of great projects, but some of them aren't great paybacks. So we've got to figure out how to get those projects to look better financially or find different ways to, to justify or to get that the money to go do that kind of thing. Can you bundle the good ones with the bad ones and kind of hide the, the ugly ones within the portfolio so the whole family looks okay, but the one kid's kind of ugly? <laughs> to be honest, sometimes, sometimes that is possible. I mean, sometimes the, the capital folks are looking at you and they're, they're, not, they're not dumb either. They know, the, they know the games too. But yeah, occasionally you can. You know, we've done LED projects where one part of the building is really awful looking, but the overall project looks good. So you can sometimes justify those things. But you know, really to move the needle for us, we're going to have to look at things, bigger things like boilers and cogen and things like that. So we've got to find different ways to figure out how to pay for this, these projects and get the capital or find the financing externally from, from, from our company. Thank you. I got one more question for you before I turn my sights back to you, Susan. Even before the tanks rolled in this really unfortunate situation, gas prices in Europe were soaring. And you heard For example, one of the large hydrogen developers say right now, green hydrogen is cheaper than natural gas in Europe because of this huge cost pressure. When you look forward at prices of hydrocarbons and alternatives, do you see a permanent step function based on what just happened that changes your avoided costs and might help your IRRs in the future, your internal rates of return? If I knew that, I think I wouldn't be here. I'd be off investing my money somewhere. But it's, so it's, a, great, it's a great question. We, we always talk about you know, what the future looks like as far as the pricing, because that does drive capital justification. Obviously, if the price is higher, projects that didn't look so good a year ago look really good right now. So you know, how can we get those done quickly or get them in? But you know, we're always looking to the future to understand you know, what the future looks like and what the trending looks like. So that we can make good decisions on, on how we spend our capital and how we achieve our decarbonization goals as well. But, but I think some of the opportunities are going to be a different playbook for how we get these projects justified. Thank you. Susan, when we were discussing this challenge for you, you mentioned that maybe one of the options might be to carve up the campus into various pieces. What would be the rationale behind that and how might that look? Well, so one of the uh, strategies that we had kicked around was our current plant and steam distribution system in particular is very old and, and needs significant investment to bring it up to par. So one of the ideas was creating smaller districts within the campus for smaller hot water districts. So we're somewhat decentralizing the plant in that way. But that way, we're also able to look at the technologies that are viable now and potentially invest in those in in a smaller district setting. And then as technologies evolve over time, we have the opportunity to install other technologies in other smaller districts. So it's just a way of not putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, 
in terms of a replacement district energy system right here and now, but allowing ourselves the flexibility to adopt new technologies as they do become more proven and more scalable. Thank you. I remember about 15 years ago, there was this solar home contest, net zero home contest, and the students at University of Maryland designed one of the winners in the project. And it got me thinking, you all have access to free labor, if you want to call it that. Students who are working on their engineering degrees, that sort of thing. How do you enlist that kind of raw talent, the professors and the teams of students in this endeavor you're all on? Yeah, so they are actually a great resource to us, both the faculty and the students. Their enthusiasm is very contagious, particularly students. They're very passionate about climate change and emissions reductions, and they're the best in terms of helping us to gather data. Sometimes we're so busy with the day-to-day activities of, of running the campus that we don't always appreciate the resource that's available to us right there and then. And as I said, the students are great for capturing field data. You know, they can go out on campus and capture field data for us or interact with our faculty to advance their research or even let us know about their research. So they are a great resource to us and they bring ideas to us, frankly. As I mentioned, the carbon capture pilot project that unfortunately never got off the ground did come from us from a faculty member. So they are a great resource to us. So obviously this is a long journey. What are the next steps look like in the iteration? Is it renewable natural gas? Is it offsets, recs? What are the the things you're looking at that are right on the horizon as you're looking for the maturity and cost declines of some of these other technologies further out? Certainly, we are looking at renewable natural gas. Unfortunately, you know, there is a pretty significant premium associated with that. How much is that? And again, you know, that premium is lessening with the price of natural gas. So that may be uh, making that a better and better option as we move forward. But we are looking at that. There are RNG credits, but again, those are the same, in my view, as as offsets. You know, it's a way of, it's a shorter term way of getting to our carbon neutrality goals. But we also recognize that 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 power plant being the remaining, the significant 80% of our net emissions remaining, that's going to be a much harder nut to crack. And so we do have a matrix of technologies we're keeping our eye on. And as economics change, as the technologies improve, we're constantly reviewing that matrix to see, you know, if things are shifting, if things are moving around and all of a sudden become more viable than they were in the past. Any one particular technology look the most exciting if, say, My silver bullet? Yeah, yeah. Like if costs fell by 50% (laughs) or something like that. I mean, we are closely looking at RNG now. And again, in recent past, it was, I think, four to five times the premium of natural gas. So that's a hard justification to make. And I will also say, as a state entity, we are also, regardless of technology, proven or not, as a state entity, we're also very restricted by our procurement procedures. So it's not like we can find a technology that we think works great and just sign up. We have to go through this long, arduous process to make sure there's competition. And a lot of times with these new technologies, there's not necessarily competition. So then you're having to do sole source justifications. So it's not just the technology itself that's a challenge or the cost. It's uh, We have a whole procurement process that we have to go through as well. Sounds like you could have chosen an easier job, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's a a great question. And, and, you know, we're looking at multiple different avenues, but a couple of things I'll highlight. Obviously, we're looking at 
renewable electricity and, and you think, well, we got thermal load, but what that's going to be hopefully for us is some sort of enabler to be able to shift thermal to electric load. So it's no, no use just shifting to electric if you're going to run off a coal plant or a natural gas plant. So we're, we're looking at renewable electricity as a potential enabler for some electrification of some of our thermal load. And the second thing is not so much on the thermal load, but carbon capture and carbon capture and utilization, carbon capture and sequestering. So there's a couple of things we're actually doing there and actually looking at. So we've actually got a project that is going to start up in 2023 that is going to take carbon dioxide that we emit today. It's a byproduct of one of our processes, and we're going to capture that and make our feedstock for our methanol plant. And that's about 180 thousand metric tons of carbon dioxide that we're going to capture with that project. So that's about 5% of our carbon. So that's a pretty significant number that we're going to go after. And we're hoping that we can leverage that technology both internally and externally. The other thing is the CCS, the sequestering of carbon. And there's some work in the Houston area to, with a group of industrials like us to look at the, the options for doing that. And we're trying to see if that's a fit for us and whether we can actually get in on it. Because one of our largest plants is in the Houston area. And if we can tap into that network of companies that are working on that actively, then it's a potential for us to reduce our carbon footprint, not necessarily our thermal load, but our carbon footprint overall. That'll really help us in our decarbonization efforts. Thanks, Peter, Susan, and David for providing a wonderful overview of this important and timely topic. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for tuning into the podcast and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you've enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, just click on the link in the show notes for details. We're honored to have the opportunity to share conversations with leaders of the energy transition in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.